Hello, and welcome to the Earthside Echo, your source for all the latest dispatches from Earthside. Tonight's program takes us to the great imperial city of London, where strange portents have been observed. Whispers are circulating about the coming of the Burning Man, and the barrier between Earth and Malifaux is growing weaker. This is the Battle of London. It began as an oddly bright star in the clear spring sky, to the great excitement of astronomers, agitators and mystics alike. It was proclaimed a comet, an omen and a nefarious plot by the French, or the guild, anarchists or any scapegoat that could be thought of. As the evening wore on, astronomers in London had taken measurements, and the light was determined to be neither star nor comet nor anything in the heavens. Conspiracy theories redoubled and heated up when the observatories calculated the light's position as no more than a mile above the city. By the first night, it became obvious that the light was growing. It had begun to shine more brightly, making an odd, elongated scar of yellow light as though sunlight was bleeding into the night sky through it. The light was the talk of England in every home, pub and street corner, all anyone knew was that nobody knew anything. Imperial air fleet dirigibles had tried to circle the thing, but bizarre wind shear patterns nearly destroyed one airship and drove the rest away before they could get close. The Ministry's seers found their magical senses dazzled or blocked when they turned their attention anywhere near the light, as though they were either trying to stare into the sun or see out of a brightly lit room through a tinted window at night. The light was an equal mystery to all the other observers. The intelligent staff of the Guild, the agents of the Crown, spies and envoys from across the world, and of course, the citizens themselves. By the second night, the light emanating from the phenomenon had grown blindingly bright. It was visible as a fiery red-yellow glow by day, and at night it was bright enough to obscure the stars around it. As the phenomenon's light brightened, the mood of the city darkened. There had been no dirigible seen in the sky for days, and no announcements made. Sharp observers noticed a marked increase in the number of guild ambassadors visiting the king's palace and walking the streets, though always with a military escort. Rumours began that a number of cabinet ministers and Whitehall dignitaries had left for the countryside. Quietly, without any public discussion, New locks and heavy bars started to appear on the doors and windows of public buildings and private homes. Three days after the appearance of the light, it had expanded to a human shape, big enough that it could just barely be distinguished by the naked eye. The light it shed onto the city was almost bright enough to read by at night. All of London was on edge, and many families who could afford it left the city entirely. Crackpocks hectored passers-by on what the light meant as they pushed poorly printed pamphlets full of dire warnings into unwilling hands. The sharp-eyed noticed that the one group famous for that behaviour, the followers of the imprisoned Ephraim Wade, seemed to have withdrawn to their lairs just when they might have been expected to be out in force. The burning shape overhead changed every day. It took on a distinct shape, looking more like a man on fire with every hour that passed, People began calling it the Burning Man, 
and those still studying it with telescopes and smoked glass, claimed to be able to see features, changes in its texture that hinted at a screaming face, which only made the rumours wilder. The steady trickle of those fleeing the city grew to a stream. Homes and shops were left empty, and factories and workshops started to close for want of workers to run them. Looting broke out, at first for valuables, but then even for food. The respectable streets became dangerous places. The police cracked down with aggression born of desperation. And Parliament gloomily debated recalling units of regulars from the coast to help enforce order. The life of the city, already struggling as its workforce fled it, was further crippled as the horse-drawn carts and carriages that supplied its goods almost vanished, the animals becoming difficult to manage as soon as they were brought out of the stable and into the light of the thing in the sky. By May 30th, two days before the manifestation, the city was in violent uproar. There were panicked rumours of a similar light appearing in the Americas above San Francisco, shortly before that city was destroyed by a massive earthquake. Although there was no attempt to keep this news from the public, it was almost lost in the noise of rebellion and madness. As the situation worsened, British officials began to suspect that the Guild's warnings about San Francisco, coupled with their wishes to bring a Guild army into England to help protect its people, were part of a larger plot to seize control of the nation. The Empire's spy network rounded up every known Guild operative and sympathiser they could find in the hope of learning more about this alleged plot. Much to their surprise, they quickly found themselves protecting these Guild agents from the people of London as much as the other way around. The sight of Guild uniforms in London had given the city's fear something to crystallise around. There had already been two rallies outside the palace that had to be forcibly dispersed when speakers started calling on the King to turn over the Guild agents to their justice. The King's empire took no chances. The Royal Rifle Corps were mobilised along the west coast and the navy was sent to patrol the Channel. Even if the light over London was not a prelude to a Guild strike, the Guild and its European clients would be made to regret any attempt to take advantage of it. Army garrisons were placed at train stations throughout the city after brawls on trains became commonplace. Everyone expected war to break out at any moment, though nobody knew quite what form that war would take. Beyond the light in the sky, there were other signs that something was fundamentally wrong with London. One night, sections of the Thames heated up to a boil, scalding anyone standing too close to the river's banks with clouds of steam. The river boiled for an hour before cooling off and returning to its normal temperature. When Big Ben struck the hour, yellow-white corpusants sometimes flared around it for a few seconds afterwards, wreathing the tower in an unwholesome glow. The street lamps, those that still burned, sometimes sputtered with nauseating turns of colour for a few moments before resuming their normal hues. Unnerving motions could be seen out of the corner of the eye whenever one ventured into the night fog. In the last few days, shuddering paranoia and desperate aggression became rational responses to these unnatural events, and the street prophets and preachers found themselves with more and more followers ready to grasp at any hint of protection or explanation. Along the streets of Whitehall and around Parliament, crowds began to assemble. 
These were not the cheery viewing parties of a mere fortnight ago, but a ghostly, silent throng. Men, women, children, tinkers, beggars, and sweeps rubbing shoulders with doctors, bankers, and gentry, drawn as if in a dream, standing in silent ranks to stare up at the burning man. Some were dragged away by their friends or family, still twisting to look up at the sky, but their numbers were replaced again by more wide-eyed, mesmerised figures drawn in from all over the city. They seemed to be waiting for something. They would not have long to wait. The Dam Bursts As the sun set on June 1st, the only real difference was the angle of the shadows. The burning man in the sky overhead was so bright that it lit up London like a second twilight. While the blazing figure's posture had not changed, it was starting to lose its definition, and the hot red-orange light it contained overflowed the shape it had been pushed into. Every few minutes, looping flares would erupt from it and briefly stain the sky. In the sullen heat of the streets, the city's residents went about their business with their eyes averted from the sky, hunched as if they expected a blow to fall on them at any moment. Even the street-corner prophets and the fast-talking peddlers of charms and spells had mostly slunk away. By now, there was not a single Londoner without at least one friend or neighbour who had quit the city or joined the silent masses staring at the phenomenon, and those who were left behind wondered if they should have joined the exodus. At the precise moment when the sun dipped below the horizon, the light of the burning man changed from red-orange to a bright azure blue, and dimensional rifts opened in the sky like water bubbles rising to the surface. All across the city of London, in the streets, beneath the earth, and in the water and air, reality was torn open, and the world of Malifaux rushed in. The dimensional rifts that formed in London that day primarily opened through to the ocean depths and the lightless lakes and caverns deep beneath Malifaux, the home of the gibbering hordes, monstrous creatures that lived in the dark, sunken places of Malifaux. The shockwave hit first, as the two worlds intermingled, and London shook from the crisscrossing impacts, buildings tumbling, tunnels and sewers collapsing, and streets and squares either opening wide into cracks or buckling into the air. While the dust was still swirling in the air, the water came. Many of the portals opened to the dark depths of Malifaux's oceans, filled with water that sunlight had never touched. Like punching a hole in the bottom of a bucket, the deluge poured out onto the city below. This was not rain. It was unbroken gazers of freezing seawater dumped onto the streets and rooftops, bursting out of the irregular dimensional rifts in every direction at once. Its force was enough to shatter windows, cave in roofs, strip the leaves and branches from trees, and crush hansoms and streetcars into kindling. Even where a crack only remained open for a moment, the volume of water that blasted through was colossal, propelled with unthinkable force by the deep ocean pressure on the other side. Within seconds, Whole streets went from dusty dry to drowning beneath roaring icy waves that tore through the narrow alleys and rolled out along the avenues. The arched cracks that had soared over the city crashed their water directly down onto its fine and venerable streets, 
while Cheapside and the East End were lashed by crossing tsunamis that erupted from portals at street level or below. A great vertical rift plunged from street level in Limehouse down through the sewers, the crowded houses and sweatshops over it subsiding into the earth, only to erupt again in a shower of water and debris when the rift began emptying the ocean into the streets. Most of the train tunnels and sewers quickly flooded as the foreign ocean filled them, and water erupted from cracks in the earth, blasted through and collapsed them. With the storm drain systems overwhelmed, the water rolled and swirled through the streets, with nowhere else to go. Whatever stood in its way was caught and swept away, as part of a lethal jumble of corpses and debris, battered and smashed against walls, trees and ground. Many of those taken by the water died within seconds. Those with the good fortune to be carried along close to the surface survived a little longer, but the metabolic shock caused by sudden immersion in almost freezing water was just as deadly as the current. Across the city, crackles and flares of ether lit up the luring dusk as the city fell into darkness. Around Buckingham Palace, the Prime Minister's residence at Downing Street and a handful of other locations, mystical wards etched into the stones of the buildings and streets tried to stave off the flood. Many of the wards held, turning away the worst of the destruction and allowing only a little water to trickle through. But others were not so fortunate. When a wall of foaming water crashed against the glowing lattice of the Bank of England's wards, the defensive wall flared up, only to become a blinding, questing tendril of lightning that leapt up toward the burning man hanging in the sky overhead. Within seconds, the building had been sucked into the sky, each brick and tile flying upward in an insane reversal of gravity, disappearing into the night. The giant electrical station at Battersea overloaded and blew out in moments after its floor cracked open and the water geezered out. But when the special constructs tried to activate, the finely tuned chips of soulstone in their mechanical brains detonated in unison, causing the decapitated machines to slump down into the water as sparks rained down from the waterlogged apparatus above. By the time the hellish deluge finally began to recede, the only light in the city was the nerve-twisting mock moonlight of the Burning Man. Most of the portals had closed, and the waters were losing their fury, now coursing through the streets in diminishing tides and running down to the Thames. The heat of the spring evening and the deadly cold of the seawater produced a thick and bitter-smelling fog that hung in the streets and formed a glossy sweat on walls and windows, cutting visibility down to a matter of yards, even where lights were still working. Through most of the city, the stunned survivors were left to grope their way through the mist with no more than what dim light was filtering down to them from the manifestation in the sky. After the deluge hit, the survivors were witnesses to what it brought into the world. They saw many things, multi-limbed shapes clambering through debris alongside them, strange fish that had no counterpart on earth, and vacant-eyed, inhuman corpses floating just below the surface. The casualties of the deluge had been horrendous, but there were many people still alive in the wreckage, those survivors gradually began to realise there were other things crawling through the wreckage with them, and unlike their human counterparts, they did not seem confused. 
They seemed hungry. Nightfall. The gibbering hordes wrenching transition to Earth was just as brutally shocking as the damage to London, but their bodies and minds were more accustomed to acting on instinct. They wasted no time trying to process what had happened. They simply gave in to their pain, and so they rampaged, hunted and killed anything that moved. For the first hellish night of what would come to be called the Battle of London, the hordes owned the city. They made it their new nest, their hunting ground and their abattoir. The humans were easy prey. Although Imperial military analysts have tried their best, there may well never be a coherent account of that first night. The current understanding is pieced together from all the wild-eyed stories of fear-maddened survivors and from the evidence of terrible slaughters and heroic last stands. A group of survivors clinging to a capsized barge on the river saw two large eel-like creatures passing over them as they were disgorged from a hole in the sky. They splashed down into the Thames and came after the drifting barge, plucking two of the survivors up and devouring them before the rest managed to beat it back with boat hooks and a flare gun, sending them off in search of easier prey. The same group seemed to have been the first to hear the piping shrieks of the bat-like Eurasi, as a swarm of them were flapping down along the line of the river under the shroud of darkness. The Eurasi were many Londoners' first sight of a horde's monster. Winged and possessed of a cunning intelligence, they nested high in broken, abandoned buildings and swooped down on any exposed humans that crossed their path. The bulk of the swarm seemed to come to rest in the West End, among the buildings around Piccadilly Circus. There they crouched atop the buildings in long, gargoyle-like lines of leathery flesh, while beneath them, the ebbing waters left a carpet of petals from the shattered carts of the Piccadilly flower sellers. The first real pitched battle was at the walls of the Wellington barracks, whose thick walls and layered etheric defences had shrugged off the worst of the flooding. Already on alert, the guards on the walls acted fast after the portals opened and managed to rescue many Imperial soldiers and residents from the streets outside. With the floods still raging, the senior officers in the barracks' inner chambers attempted to get word to their superiors, first by telephone and wired signals, then by more powerful thaumaturgic methods. Their signal was the first report to make it out of London that night, a broken and distorted plea to the Imperial garrison at Calais to provide support and aid. Shortly after the distress call was made, a group of maniacally energetic crawlers came scrambling out of the water all around the Commission's walls. The first hint that the defenders were under siege was the flare and spit of the magical wards topping the walls, and then clawed arms began to tear the outer walls down. The battle was joined and fiercely fought in the cloying mist. It would be hours before the bloodshed eased. The barracks was the first holdout to repulse the onslaught, but it was not the only one. Over the next several hours, small crews of dogged defenders managed to carve safe zones out of the chaos around them. The etheric defences around Downing Street remained standing, and the street itself was spared from the reality cracks that had weakened the city around it. The Prime Minister and her staff formed the core of the defence, and they were joined hours after sundown by the surviving King's Guards and Royal Household staff, who had fled from the ruins of Buckingham Palace as soon as the floodwaters were low enough to ford. King Edward 
refused to leave London during the crisis. He found himself trapped in St James's Palace as the city around it flooded. The water pressure caused parts of the building to cave in, but the majority of the palace was spared. To his credit, Edward was physically prevented by his staff from leaving the palace to try and help those caught outside, but he inspired many of the other survivors there, both soldier and civilian, to start making sallies outside the walls to bring back any survivors they found. The rooms of the palace soon became one giant shelter and hospital. On Drummond Lane, the occult detectives of the Extraordinary Cases Bureau worked around the clock to try and unravel what was happening in the city since the appearance of the Burning Man, and nearly all of them, save for their black ops team, were in their headquarters when the sky broke open. The building's brick walls were badly shaken by the waters and quakes, and the ECB found their skills and constructs immediately pressed into service to stop the building from collapsing in on them. The repair efforts segued into building fortifications and finally into open battle against the gibbering hordes. The slums around Bethnal Green had become impossibly crowded in the days before the convergence. There were many rumours that one of the local factories was producing tonics to counter harmful emanations from the Burning Man, and increasingly desperate and terrified crowds packed into the streets and alleys around it when the workday ended, hoping for medicine. The crowd stampeded when the dimensional rifts appeared overhead, and the casualties from the deluge were horrifying. When the hordes broke through, the survivors banded together with their neighbours and battled the monsters with whatever makeshift weapons they could lay their hands on. They knocked holes in walls so that they could move between buildings without risking the streets, pulled their lanterns and candles, and barricaded the alleys against the packs of crawlers. They even began raiding the upper floors of the slum towers to kill the Yurazi swarms attempting to nest there, managing some small successes. The vast London docks had been swept almost clean of life by the walls of water rolling over them from the streets. Once the deluge was done, the survivors were overrun from two directions, as waves of beings from Malifaux came from the Thames seeking prey, while others swarmed from the buildings and streets in an attempt to seek refuge in the cold depths. What few humans were caught between the two groups did not survive for long. The moored ships fared little better, some sinking with their hulls fatally ruptured by opening portals, others burning at their berths from internal damage or swarmed by the amphibious beasts of the hordes. The centre of human resistance on the docks became the IMS Caffin, an antiquated ocean steamer built before the reopening of the breach that was in dock, awaiting a refit for its engines. The Caffin was big enough to ride the swells in the water that wrecked many of the vessels around her. Its skeleton crew was able to fight off the few opportunistic predators that came their way, and when they were sure their vessel was secure, the captain declared that the ship would ignite its lights and sound its foghorn. The crew risked its own safety in an attempt to let any nearby survivors know that the ship was a safe haven. He announced that any of the crew who wished to leave the ship or take refuge in locked compartments were free to do so with no judgment or repercussions. To the last, they volunteered to stay at their posts. The light and horns did draw monsters from the hordes, but the stoic crew was able to fight them off one by one in what seemed like an endless night of skirmishes. Many survivors in the nearby streets were able to get to the ship, and when dawn came, the Caffin was at her berth, battered and bloody, 
but still defying the invaders. Dawn. The night the portals opened, many Londoners died. It was quick and brutal, but just as many died from the water as from attacks from the gibbering hordes. The hordes themselves were dazed and confused by the sudden change in their surroundings, and while they lashed out with a fury and hunger, their first instinct was towards survival. Hope for the stricken city came when the sky finally started to lighten in the east. Wreckage-strewn streetscapes began to emerge from the pitch blackness. The hordes crawled, scuttled, and glided amongst the shattered buildings, their bodies pallid and glistening against the gloomy grey of the mist-filled streets. The light of the Burning Man seemed diminished somehow, as if it had begun to lose some of its ferocity. In its place, the light of the rising sun slowly penetrated the fury-fogged brains of the hordes. As colour finally began to seep into the day, the invaders fled from something many of their kind had not seen or imagined for generations. The sunrise. The race to hide from the light brought a fresh round of bloodletting. Beasts that had roamed the streets were desperate to break into any cover they could find. Inside London's shattered buildings, they found little pockets of darkness and burst in on the huddled groups of survivors who had hidden from the rampages of the night. The dawn of June 2nd, was greeted by another spurt of desperate skirmishes as survivors stood and fought in their homes or were driven out of them to wander the brutalised city. As the day turned, so too did the battle. All through the night, as panicked refugees and garbled transmissions came out of London, the Empire mobilised. By dawn, they were already converging on London. The first signs of salvation were large silhouettes in the sky, the massive dirigibles of the Imperial Aerial Regiment arrived in the city with the dawn. They had been sent from Kent to scout the area and report on the state of the fighting, but what they saw beneath them was barely recognisable as London at all. The sun had not yet burned the fog away, and the pilots had to crisscross the expanse of sickly, undulating white mist in search for landmarks to get an idea of their position. The rows of airship masts behind the docks speared up out of the fog, but had been claimed by Eurasipods that were difficult to dislodge. The first wave of blimps was met with high resistance. A strange light lanced out from St Paul's Cathedral, damaging a number of the airships and creating a new wave of portals, some within the airships themselves. Some of the ships managed to avoid the magical light and suffered only minor damage, but others careened wildly towards the ground, crashing down upon the city they had intended to save. By mid-morning, the fog had mostly burned away, and the hellish wreck of the city was revealed. The surviving airships could see the streets of broken, roofless buildings and fields of debris. Countless fires dotted the cityscape, but there were surprisingly few corpses to be found. Some streets and areas still lay underwater, improper drainage creating stagnated pools of salt water. Inhuman creatures could be seen scuttling between shadows, and the giant monsters that made up the nucleus points of the invasion acted as new city landmarks, albeit ones that wandered from street to street. Not everything was bleak, however, for the airships could also see signs of hope. 
they quickly identified places where the residents had made a stand against their inhuman attackers. Downing Street, the barricade ring at Bethnal Green, and many smaller pockets of resistance had all become important rallying points during the long, terrible night. The pilots jubilantly reported them all. London had not fallen. While the surviving dirigibles were passing over the city, the ground forces were also on the move. The Imperial General Command had initially considered forming up to encircle the city and work inwards from its edge. But with the news of pockets of survivors and resistance in the city, that plan was turned on its head. The units closest to the battle were mobilised for an audacious lunge directly into the middle of the city to retake the heart of London from the inside. Trains loaded with soldiers rolled into the city from the north and west. When the rails became too damaged or flooded for the trains to advance any further, the soldiers dismounted and advanced on foot, forming columns centred on the railway lines. Whenever they found streets broad enough to make ambushes difficult, they branched off in search of more survivors. Along the Great North Road came the cavalry, both mounted and armoured. The dragoons led the way, and one of the hulking king's hand titans brought up the rear. The army had tried to bring in a second wave of mounted troops and horse-drawn artillery, but the soft, soaked soil made it nearly impossible. The boldest of all were the waterborne troops, who boarded river barges on the northwestern canals and came down the Thames, heading for the battered docks to set up a beachhead. These forces found themselves under assault from both sides and suffered heavy losses. The first full day of the Battle of London was fought in skirmishes. The King's Empire didn't know it at the time, but many of the creatures that had been dropped on their city were still adapting to the new environment, their bodies shifting to survive on dry land. The second day. Perhaps if the Empire had struck that first day, the fight for London would not have dragged on for another week. Alas, the Empire didn't yet understand its enemy, and it chose to prioritise the rescue of civilians over attacking the monsters. It waited until the second day to properly begin its offensive counter-attack. Unfortunately, the gibbering hordes didn't think like any army the Empire had ever encountered. What would have been considered brilliant manoeuvring against a traditional army led by a single general proved to be a folly against the creatures of Malifaux. The hordes did not have a front line for the Empire troops to manoeuvre around. They did not have any real flank to exploit, nor did they have a single leader to outsmart. Instead, small pods of the creatures each acted independently of each other all throughout the city. The first skirmish of the day started with the beleaguered troops that landed on the docks. After a momentary pause from the previous night's fighting, they received orders to push north and clear the way for a second company that was arriving by train. The troops slowly moved forward and cleared out each of the buildings lining their route. They continually encountered small pockets of resistance, groups of six to twenty creatures that had made nests wherever they could. The weak resistance offered by these small groups led the commander in charge of the advance to make a fatal assumption that the gibbering hordes were no smarter than common beasts. It was that assumption that left his company vulnerable to the first true counterattack. It started with a wave of crawlers running down an open street without care for life or limb. The British troops lined up to shoot them down, 
and that's when the barbed crawlers struck from hiding and shot their venomous barbs into the soldiers of the Empire. The troops that weren't struck by the first volley dove for cover, but they found nearly every nook and cranny filled with the sharp teeth of camouflaged, chameleon-like creatures that had been lying in wait. It was then that a siren first made its appearance. With an eerie, undulating wail, the siren lured the remaining British troops out of formation, where they were devoured by waiting crawlers. This skirmish was far from unique. All over the city, the Empire's army was confounded by the tactics of the hordes. They did not seek high ground. They did not build fortifications. They were unconcerned with their flanks. They moved to hunt with no greater plan for victory, and they would fall upon each other for nourishment nearly as often as their enemies. When night fell on the second day, the Empire withdrew most of its troops from the city, leaving only a skeleton crew to hold important defensive locations. Fighting the hordes at night had been deemed to be too dangerous, and consolidating their strength to a handful of defensive locations allowed the Empire to minimise its casualties. The gibbering hordes, by the same token, had begun to consolidate their own hold upon the city, they were beginning to see that the meagre physical attributes of humans were shored up with powerful weapons. The city's only apparent food source seemed to be the people populating it, and they were becoming more tenacious by the day. The following days. The following week was a series of long, hard-fought guerrilla battles throughout the city of London. There were no front lines or major victories, only bloody skirmishes and a great deal of death. The moments of triumph gained by one side or the other were short-lived, as neither army allowed the other to enjoy its victories for very long. The Empire's nightly retreats forced it to abandon much of the ground it had gained earlier that day, and the hordes were unconcerned about holding any of the territory they claimed. It was only in the final days of the conflict that the Empire troops began to make headway in reclaiming the city. But even those victories came at terrible cost. The commanders leading the defensive efforts sent a number of specialist units into the London underground with the intent of clearing the sewers and train tubes of hostiles. The gibbering hordes had been using the sewers and tunnels to move freely throughout the city. It also served as a spawning ground and was thick with fresh eggs. As the King's Empire moved into the tunnels, they erupted into a war zone. The Empire gradually gained advantage over the hordes, and units of troops were stationed at major intersections while smaller tunnels were collapsed to prevent the hordes from reinfesting them. One by one, the leaders of the pods realised that the city was no longer a hunting ground worth fighting for, and abandoned it. Though some smaller pods stayed behind in the tunnels, the majority of the hordes followed the Thames out toward the countryside, and eventually, the ocean. The Aftermath Although the Empire won the Battle of London, it was not a complete victory. Not only are there still creatures lurking in the Thames and tunnels of the city, but much of the city lies in ruin. It will take years of rebuilding efforts to fix what a single night destroyed, and some parts of the city might never be restored to their former glory. The aftershock of the battle extends beyond the devastation of London. The British armies have mobilised, 
and the empire has called upon its citizens to join its armies and help defend their lands against the gibbering hordes. The other nations of the world quickly followed suit, and some took advantage of the chaos to justify the invasion of their neighbours. The world is mobilising for war, and it is only a matter of time before other nations join the fray. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Earthside Echo. Join us next time for more dispatches from Earthside.